Welcome to The Aperture, a podcast for curious minds and critical social thinkers, hosted by me, Steph Cutler. If you believe a better world is worth consideration, then you're in good company. Each episode, I chat with someone with views and or experiences of a social issue, and at the end, I hand over to a creative contributor who has the final say. On this episode, I'm joined by Marie-Claire O'Brien. Marie-Claire and I first met when we were appointed trustees of a charity board. And whilst we work in different parts of the social sector, we have a shared interest and commitment to developing and utilising lived experience to create social change. And this is what we're going to talk about today. Marie-Claire is a well-known and well-respected lived experience leader working in and around the criminal justice system. Amongst other things, she sits on the steering committee for the Prisoners Learning Alliance and on the expert panel of lived experience of the Criminal Justice Alliance. She's the founder and CEO of New Leaf, which has supported hundreds of male, female and young offenders to change their lives by taking a holistic approach and utilizing the benefits of positive networks, education and lived experience. Gladly then we're joined by Jason N. Smith as our poet on this episode. Jason combines his lived experience and his creative talents to produce a poem in response to my conversation with Marie Claire. Jason has worked as a community support worker for CRC Probation in Stoke-on-Trent and is currently a development coach working with young people in care. He's also a trustee of Safe Ground, which develops programs for the justice system, so a perfect poet to join us today. But first... I'd recently learned that New Leaf had launched a lived experience network and I wanted to ask Marie-Claire more about this and started by asking her how it came about. As part of my dissertation at the end of my degree last year, I decided to do a study about people who are running their own organisations in the criminal justice system but who have also got lived experience of the criminal justice system, as in they've been in prison or they've had convictions. So, yeah, we had 51 responses from various leaders with lived experience throughout the the UK. And, yeah, so the network's just based on the findings from that study, really. And so the idea behind it is is to connect people? It's sort of a two-tiered approach, the network. So you've got that upper level, if you like, the people that have been out for a while that are doing great things in the sector. But then because of COVID and a variety of other issues, we also need to provide an additional layer of support to people just being released from prison. So because of face-to-face services being reduced due to the um, infection rate, we need to look at other innovative ways of engaging prisoners as as they're released because regardless of COVID, people are still being released from prison and it's like what support can we give those people so the idea behind the network is that we're going to form an online platform if you like where we can do all that work but also we've got some really nice things planned like we've got a conference planned with an awards ceremony and six awards for a variety of people with lived experience so it feels really good it feels really positive it's been a lot of support from the sector and both network members and ally organizations So yeah, it feels really good and it's really good to be here talking about lived experience with you and what that actually means. Because both you and I really value lived experience being something that can be a real catalyst for change, for changing systems as well as change for individuals. Um, 
how might this um, this galvanizing of, of people lived experience leaders start to tap into systems change within the criminal justice system? Well, I think they already are, to be honest with you. I think that's already been happening gently. The, you know, the movement, if you like, let's call it the movement, the Lex movement that Baljeet Sandhu has kind of been a massive part of. And that's, I suppose, where I was first exposed to the idea of lived experience leadership and what that means and how we can support it, why it's important. You know, we talk about it being a newish movement that's galvanising traction. But actually, you know, lived experience leadership has been around for a long, long time. Um, AA, for example, Alcoholics Anonymous, was built on that kind of reciprocal mutual aid kind of peer support, if you like. I think what is new is just the knowledge around it as a mechanism for creating social change. And what the network is hoping to do is just bring together all of those wonderful but fragmented people like us that are kind of feeding into policy and changing policy, shifting things. But we're stronger together than we are apart. And it always feels to me like there's lots of pockets of great work going on, but that we're very siloed um, and we're very very much small fish in a large pond and I think if we all join together then that can only be a good thing. It does feel like the time is coming for for a significant change in this field. Do you see this in your work more largely? I think yeah you're exactly right the commissioning landscapes change so there's a, a much larger focus on lived experience leadership and I think that language is what's you know so the, the, the core the fundamental act of lived experience leadership has been around for ages but the the language has just only recently formed and that's like I say thanks to Baljeet's work I think and you know the work of Unlimited and the big uh, the big lottery national lottery community fund so yeah you're right the funders are behind it and and they're really supporting um, or even galvanizing a focus on lived experience leadership and, and when you know what it's like Steph when the funders get on board everybody gets on board so it's like the big thing now because they need to tick that box if we're being honest a lot of organizations feel like they need to tick that lived experience box which then leads to it becoming tokenistic and you know all about bid candy and that's been around for a while now hasn't it we've all heard of like service user engagement and stuff like that and and I think that's the lower end of the spectrum that's quite that's quite tokenistic it leaves a bit of a bad taste in your mouth um because people people that take part in that lower lower sort of level engagement aren't typically valued for that it's more of an extraction exercise organizations will come and speak to service users and just extract what they need from them and then there's a cliff edge for those participants it's referred to as service using engagement but there's very little engagement actually or it's it's quite one-off isn't it ad hoc what they often do is is engage the disengaged um, you know get them into a focus group or something with the mm-hmm. promise of a voucher and and it, like we said extract what they need from them and then and then that's it those people go on their merry way and, and and then feel further disenfranchised because like you say they've participated in something they've, they've bought in but then there's no respectful follow-up given in terms of you know you said this and we've done this on the back of that or as a result of that but when it's done right it's a really beautiful, powerful thing, as you know. I mean, it's it's what formed my organisation. This this consultation um, with the communities that we serve is is imperative if we're to create projects and services that truly meet the needs of 
the communities that we serve. So, so yeah, we, we're grounded in consultation and service user engagement. With We're always doing consultations and speaking, just asking questions to the community that we serve um, and being curious about the answers and actually doing something based on the answers. So, so yeah, I think we do it right, but I think we do it right because we're led by that lived experience of, of being on the other end of that. Isn't that, though, because your organisation is is largely led and run by people with lived experience of the system? Only. We're, we're only, only led, led, led by people. So our board is made up of not, not necessarily just the criminal justice system, but a variety of services that people, that our people will have been in contact with. So homelessness services, youth justice and criminal justice. Um, and then all of our staff, bar one, bar, bar our office manager, have got got that lived experience as well. So it really is top to the bottom uh, in our organisation. We were speaking earlier, weren't we, about our first experiences of like service user engagement. And I think for me, it was when I was in prison um, many years ago, like 13 years ago now. And, you know, these researchers go into prisons and, and I can remember I was paid with a Mars bar. Um, I can't hang remember on, what hang on, hang on, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're laughing, but that Mars bar was like was like gold dust in the in those in that prison. But um, okay, okay, so it was a really good payment. <laughs> it was, it was a, the, the, it could have been a worse payment, but um, but yeah, so taking part in studies and, and consultations, having no clue really what they're about, just being like this passive participant if you like um to tick a box for the for the researcher and the, the prison so yeah just passive is probably the best word for it completely depoliticized when I was um a prisoner myself but then you know coming out of prison and, and having years and years out here of experiences and then you know for whatever reason deciding to activate that lived experience and I think that's what we talk about what the difference between lived experience and lived experience leadership I think is that space in between where you decide to activate the most negative feelings that you have in your life in order to better support a community and create a service that's actually going to be used and valued and needed. Both are needed in terms of system change aren't they we need people to have opportunities to meaningfully participate without feeling any obligation to take it to any sort of leadership level. And we need people with lived experience who do want to pursue um, a leadership journey to create system change and to support others, to have the opportunity to do that too. There's two levels there, isn't there? It's almost like a continuum, isn't yeah. it? Rather it than... Well, it can be, can't it? Yeah, and, that, and that's what the network's all about, really. It's been concerned with the cliff edge that's that's been happening around service user engagement. So there's, you know, there's lots of organisations out there that are led, led by lived experience leaders and that are feeding into policy the views of the communities that they serve. But then, like we said about the cliff edge that happens after that has taken place, um, people are left alone again and, and disenfranchised and the network's more around the sort of practical support and applications of that, you know, how we can really provide pathways um, of progression for people but then also support them if they do want to tap into attending focus groups for revolving doors agency or feeding into probation reform consultations so like you said at any level people should be able to decide whether to leave it there 
or whether to continue the journey. And I think in terms of continuing the journey, we need to put certain things in place to make that more supportive and more um, connected, more streamlined. What was it that took you from passive whilst in prison to the Lex leader that you, you now are? This, this is for me, or I could, I could do this, I can do this. When I was in prison, I was in a completely different um, headspace to where I've been the rest of my life. And I think that was all due to my offence, carrying a lot of guilt and shame and regret around that. Yeah. Where I, yeah, I'd had a car crash, Steph, where my friend died, unfortunately, due to me drink driving. So you can imagine the, the feelings around that with the family. I want them to know that I'm accountable. I'm not trying to hide away from what I did and what happened. But yeah, they're always on my mind and I'm always really conscious of not not making it worse for them so in terms of being in prison and 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 feeling able willing um or willing to activate that lived experience I just wasn't in that headspace at all um it was more just to get your head down get through it and and get back out to the people that you care about ultimately you know pay your price to society and if you said to me you know on the day that I left prison you'll be heading back into those gates one day and it will be your career and you'll you'll love it I would have laughed at you and just said absolutely no way (laughs) it was the furthest thing away from my mind yeah you're 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 managing emotions and your thoughts and things that have happened to you that's that's too difficult at that time to to contemplate anything beyond and I think actually often you don't even know there are opportunities beyond it because why would you I was a corporate person, so I come from a sort of quite corporate background of estate agency and mortgage advising. I nursed my dad through lung cancer, which sent me off the rails, and being off the rails is what led to my horrific offence that was so catastrophic for, for my friend um, and his family. So on the back of all that, there was, there was no inkling that I was capable or had the potential of, of doing anything like this really and that's been a real journey and where that journey started I was at a real crossroads I think I was a stay-at-home mom. I just had my my son was kind of two and a half um and I separated from my partner obviously was thinking I need to get back into the world of work and what am I going to do am I going to go back to corporate and which is really well paid I was earning a lot of money in my late teens early 20s so I thought I could go back to that, but really didn't feel didn't feel drawn to it. Felt a bit turned off by it because it was so soulless. And then a friend of mine who worked for a youth offending team, she had um, a volunteering opportunity, fell on her lap to work with women coming out of prison as a mentor. And I just, honestly, I was just like, no, I'm, I'm, I haven't got the skills that they need. I just felt completely inadequate in applying for that role. But, you know, was encouraged to do so and had a conversation. And they were like, you're exactly the kind of person that we want because of your lived experience of being in prison. So the thing that was making me think I couldn't do it and I wouldn't be attractive as a, you know, as a volunteer even to give up my time or that I'd be too risky was the thing that made me really attractive because they knew that it would help with engagement of, of these women. And for me, it was all a new concept. I'd done a bit of peer mentoring in prison and stuff when I did the drug rehab. So it was a concept that I knew about, but it's different in prison when you're out of prison. And I was intrigued to see how the relationship would work. And and honestly, since that day, sort of six years ago now, um, and we've had over 500 um, people use the service and access the service, 
it continues to shock and surprise me pleasantly how relationships shift and support people to make better decisions in their lives. New Leaf was born basically from that volunteering opportunity and then working for various other charities and and realising I could probably do a better job myself, getting my confidence up there and doing a consultation where the community themselves told me what they needed. It was, you know, they were like, we want people like you. Relatable role models, I think, was the term that was used to show us how to access opportunities. And it just made complete sense to me. It was like, yeah, of course you do. (laughs) Well, it is so obvious, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, It's so obvious. And so really what you're saying is that it almost took somebody to see the value of your own lived experience before you did yourself. And it's that, it's that part there for me that really blew my head off because for me, my lived experience was, it was just that, it was just part of my journey. It was how other people reacted to that that made me see, I can use this, I can use this as a tool to engage people and to shine a light on certain issues that I witnessed and yeah it just sort of made me realize that actually I can use this as a bit of a platform not just for me but for others to elevate the voices of others and it was just a magic moment I think and then also seeing other people other leaders you know when I was in those kind of lower level roles earning 50 quid a day or volunteering seeing those those other leaders that were further along having having a platform and speaking to policy makers and decision makers and just really opened my eyes and maybe say wow like look what can be achieved she's got a conviction and look you know look at the look at the career and the respect that she's carved out for herself in spite of that or maybe even because of that and it's fireworks going off all over the place around that sort of time around sort of six seven eight years ago Um, and then like I say just a couple of years of just really immersing myself in the criminal justice sector and then started New Leaf and I've never looked back honestly it's the job of my dreams they say if you do it for free it's the career for you and I did it for free for three years <laughs> it's definitely the, it's definitely the career for me. How do you find that the the policy makers the decision makers respond to the likes of, of New Leaf and this growing Lex movement? It can still be quite tokenistic and um, mm-hmm. it can be done quite badly but I think now they're starting to realise that they're missing a trick. So, for example, we've got the funders on board now, but we've also got like HMPPS, which is Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service. They have a strategy now, which I literally saw last week, around employing people with lived experience and creating pathways for ex-prisoners to um, become civil servants and work within the system to make it better to challenge you know the way that they do things to challenge the risk averse language that I constantly see that that leaves no room for rehabilitative culture and things like that so it is really exciting I honestly feel like we're on um, the crest of a the crest of a, a huge tidal wave that's been building for a long long time I'm just really excited to see where that goes and how, how it pans out and it's not going to be smooth sailing but at least people and organisations and institutions are willing to, you know, spend money and, and do it credibly rather than just do it as a, an extraction exercise. Obvious question, but what are the benefits for engaging and, and employing and, you know, valuing 
the lived experience of the of the people who've been part of a system that you you're in charge of managing for example okay so i think so i think you've got this sort of ethical and moral reasoning haven't you you know for hmpps for example or the system criminal justice system to preach about rehabilitation and you know to try and get employers to give second chances to ex-prisoners and stuff that's all great that's wonderful but if you're not doing it yourselves yeah. it's a bit it, it, it's a bit hypocritical leaves a bit bit of a bad taste in my mouth so so I think there's been that challenge from 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 us for a while you know practice what you preach why are you cutting why are you sifting people with convictions out of the process when actually they've served their time and so they're rehabilitated are you saying that there's nothing there for people that bother to rehabilitate themselves are you saying that you know you'll never give them a chance again and and there's been that kind of gentle challenging going on um for years now and they're finally starting to listen listen which is great you've already got people within your organization that have convictions i've got a friend that's a governor of a prison who has got 80 odd previous convictions from from when he was a youth you know he's been working in this in the service for many many years and um, there's other statutory managers like probation managers that I've spoken to that have got previous convictions there's 11 million of us out there we, we are working within the system as it stands but the problem is that people aren't allowed to talk about it it's seen as this dark mark that they should be ashamed of and the stigma continues so my challenge to HMPPS was it's all great doing this new piece of work about attracting people with convictions into the service and and you know really being a leader in that but actually what about the people that you're already employing that can't be authentic about their previous lives or you know they they may want to talk about it they may not want to talk about it but don't you think there's some work to be done to support them and we need to lift the stigma around what rehabilitation looks like if that's what we're striving for and focus less on risk and less how the public might perceive us and just more on what we're trying to achieve which is ultimately fewer victims fewer victims of crime less people in prison um, because it costs too much more a more happy society it's really, it's really not rocket science at the moment the biggest reason is the economic impetus around you know we've, we've got less money and we need to do more work with that so when you employ lived experience and um, eyes or perspectives it's a common sense approach in my mind. It's like we can see the gaps that need filling. We can see the pathways that are broken and that, that, you know, that really need to be mended if people are going to progress, for example. So, you know, some of our guys that we support coming out of prison, they breached on the first weekend they were out and, and you'd look at that or the system would look at that and say, these men have failed. They've, they've failed. They're clearly not rehabilitated. Let's lock them back up again. But for us, it was around seeing their journey well actually you kick them out of prison on the friday with four pounds 60 and they had to get to crew with four pounds 60 which is like 100 miles away how, how are you expecting them to Don't do figure. that that's why they got breached not because they failed it's because the system has failed them i think it's just getting to the crux of the matter if i'm honest just 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 working out where the problems are and just seeing the easy most linear way to fix those problems um, so it's cost effective for the system to employ to employ us because because we know where it's failing sometimes we don't mince our words do you think that's um, a good thing or a bad thing i think it can, I just i think it can, <laughs> i think it can be both if you really really understand 
because you've lived it, then actually it's obvious and the obvious things can get overlooked by those working on a system but but quite removed from it they sometimes overcomplicate it so for me i think it's that passion is what it comes down to with that passion and risk always so the reason that that we're kind of sought after is because we're passionate and we'll do a lot more so you know if, if somebody pays me 20 grand a year to do a job using my lived experience I'm going to give you 40 grand's worth of employee do you know what I mean because mm-hmm. I just care so much about the job that I'm doing so so yeah they're getting a lot more bang for their book it makes complete sense at the moment when we're having to work smarter rather than harder but I think I think from the lived experience side as well we need to be cautious around a few things so I think sometimes our passion can uh on the side of unmanageability or unprofessionalism and and this is a real quandary for me because it's like let's talk about lived experience leadership pathways we want to help people to like professionalize don't we you know if you want to get additional skills we absolutely should be supporting that but we also need to be careful for example that with probation using um lived experience mentors you know that we don't assimilate people into the problem. What I mean when I say that is you don't want to dilute the lived experience or sand it off so much, you know, sand off that rawness and that passion and that, you know, the stuff that makes us us, the stuff that makes, you know, the magic side. It's that authenticity, yeah. Authenticity, the credibility. You don't want to you don't want to sand that off so much or make it so um so much less that we become actually become part of the problem as opposed to part of the solution so don't try and assimilate us into the system because actually the reason why you were attracted to us in the first place is because of how different we are so I had an example of that a couple of weeks ago with one of our contracts where we're doing a really great job with this contract it's a it's a new contract it's been going for a month but one of the concerns of the um statutory agency involved was that we don't manage or we don't consider risk the way that they do and in, and in a way that they see as being safe so we should know the risk of every person that we support and what they've done as in what crime they've committed and we were like well we don't need to know that really because we're not about that we're about how supporting people to progress away from from those labels and that stigma and there was this real kind of tension between the two and I actually was called naive <laughs> like so one of these statutory employees said I think you're being a bit naive and I was like I find that so offensive and the reason I find it offensive is because I've navigated this system as a service user and navigated risk at a time when nobody else was managing the risk around me nobody else cared enough to manage the risk around me as a prisoner I've navigated, you know, being a lap dancer for two and a half years before my before my sentence. I've navigated being a victim of knife crime. I've navigated the death of my father. The one thing that they cannot use in a sentence with me, word-wise, is naive. And I just said, I think that's so rude. It's not, not if anything, we're desensitised to risk because we've, because we've been exposed to it so much. Do you know what I mean? And we've just got a different perspective. And I think for me, that's the, that's the clincher in the criminal justice system. And it's this notion of risk. So you've got the statutory agencies that are purely focused on risk and how we manage that both in prison and out in the community. And then you've got agencies like ours that are le- led by lived experience that don't give a hoot 
about what you what you did in the past really we care about how you're presenting today and your motivations and and how we can help you get from a to b to c to y you know what i mean so yeah there's just this huge disparity between the approaches and i know that we've got it right because all the research and papers and desistance theory tells us that we've got it right it's all about relationships and people moving away from the label of offender but what we're battling with what we're constantly battling with is the system which is always dragging us back to this notion of risk um, is there is there a connection between risk and people being um, potentially disruptive if you're in the tech sector and you are an innovator you're seen as a disruptor and that's a really positive thing you know it's it's positive because it's probably cheaper faster more efficient whatever i mean in in that study in my study that i did last year one of the participants said it really eloquently he was in addiction and he was just entering into recovery and he could see loads of gaps in the you know in the services loads of things that weren't working so we started challenging them I started challenging them quite vocally and was seen as a as being a disruptive influence and he was actually banned from he was barred from a lot of the recovery meetings that he was a part of for that reason so this guy created his own service and now runs a multi-million pound turnover charity that supports hundreds and hundreds of people into recovery every year so he clearly knew what he was on about but he was as not knowing what it was about so I think uh, and that's what I mean it's like how do we support people to to speak their truth but have their truth respected as well like and I think that comes with networks and that comes with business networks like like the New Leaf Network you know that comes from us all supporting each other and all giving each other confidence and the courage to stand the courage of our convictions isn't it I suppose yeah. <laughs> Thanks go to Marie Claire for sharing her wisdom, her worthy aims and her wonderful spirit. And now over to our guest poet. Jason N. Smith has performed his poetry at London's Roundhouse, the Royal Festival Hall and Tate Modern to name but just a few prestigious venues. He's also featured at several literature festivals including twice reading at London's Literature Festival. He's been involved in the BBC's Listening Project and National Prison Radio. Jason has published a collection of his poetry called Beyond Words and has released an album and a book. Very happy to hand over to Jason N. Smith to have the final word. Sometimes I speak words intellectual and contextual to the mind's thought schematical pattern to alter perceptions, conceptions with a hope broadband connections get connected and fibre optics shine straight and don't deviate. Because our lived experience holds a power beyond smartphones, CPUs, panoramic social media, TV, news, even beyond fickle internal views. So come, join dot to dot constellations of words and weave internet, network, neural paths, a binary double minds, a creative maths and achieve a singularity. And then in your singularity, form a common unit community and you will see where two or more are gathered the very definition of resettlement can be socially changed to settlement with no token semblance of recognition for transition from recidivism to desistance because listen when we activate the space between brain thought and dream sublime we find 
lived experience leadership can modify systems we left behind. You see, I vigorously chiseled away institutionalization's locks, while time's healing waves washed away rubber stamps demarking me as stock. And I have not stopped. After unraveling rolls of razor wire constricting vocal cords with deepest, darkest thoughts. Because I talk words like foreign bodies inserted into ecosystems of carnivorous thoughts to cause reacting attacks and a devouring of ideas along neural paths so that, perhaps, collectively, we create such a didactic discourse it beats uproar and house law's door demanding reform. Because we are born into the world with so much to offer but within a capitalising mass production of assets offsetting taxes, we become just a number. But even when released in prison no longer, having paid the bill with coinage of time for our crimes, why is it ex-prisoners suffer stigma and are still labelled offender? That's it from me, Steph Cutler. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe so you don't miss a future episode of The Aperture on Apple, Spotify, YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please like, share, leave a review and The Aperture can be found on Facebook and Twitter. This episode of The Aperture was produced by VI Podcasting. See you next time for more social change thinking.